Today's message is entitled, Encouraged in the Faith. Encouraged in the Faith. The subtitle is Living in the Pattern of the Great Lives of Faith. Now, I want to begin with a statement about marriage and relationships. As with marriage or any love relationship of value, commitment is crucial. Emotions ebb and flow in any healthy relationship, and it is commitment and loyalty that takes you from mountaintop to mountaintop through valley after valley. I would also suggest to you that if a marriage relationship does not have valleys and struggles and difficulty, it's not legit. You're living a fantasy. Because it is a human being connected with a human that God is utilizing their marriage to alter them from the inside out. And with that type of agitation, there's no way you're not having valleys. So in all significant relationships, including our walk with God, words like loyalty and faithfulness make all the difference. Marriage is designed to be problematic. Walking with God is designed to be problematic. We must understand that and own that. Let me give you some stats. I have, in my years of ministry, counseled innumerable couples. I couldn't tell you if it's in the hundreds, in the thousands, in the tens. I have no idea. It's been a lot. I can tell you that I went back through yesterday, and I write down every wedding that I do. I write down the date that they got married, and... As of the last wedding I did, I've done 74 weddings since 1998. Five of those couples are divorced. Some of them in a very short amount of time. I can guarantee you this. If you are divorced within the first two years of marriage or you hit the rocks in a severe way within two years of your marriage, I can tell you why. Unrealistic expectations. That is the reason. If you get fired up about Jesus Christ, go ballistic for him, and you bail out in two years, I can tell you why. Unrealistic expectations. You don't know what you're walking into. So let's reset for a moment. Marriage is not intended for bliss. It's not even intended for consistent happiness. Marriage is designed for change. You go, what what do you mean? I didn't need more chance. That's not why I got married. No, I know why you got married. I'm just telling you why God let you get married. (laughs) Marriage is designed for change. What that means is God is utilizing your other partner as his primary chisel to make you into the image of God. And that's going to irritate the living daylights out of you. (laughs) Jesus in saving you, comes into your life to blow it up. It's why he's there. He does not come into your life to make it easier for you. As a matter of fact, I can guarantee you that if you accept Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, it doesn't make it easier. And people go, I don't understand why you say that. All my Christian friends say, you know what, I could have never survived this without Jesus, or I could never have made it through this struggle without Jesus, or Jesus is my everything. You keep saying all these positive things. You're absolutely right. Those things are true. However, 
He is not here to make your life easier from your perspective. He is here to make your life better. That's different. What it is designed on is alteration, explosion, unhinging, things like that. Because he's not okay with where you're at. That's why you need a savior. You are signing up for destruction so that you might be rebuilt again. In marriage, you are entering into a covenant by which you are saying to God, change me, O Lord, and use this partner to do so. When you see it from that perspective, it alters all your expectations. Suddenly, the challenges you face are not only normal, they're necessary. And they're not a great disappointment. Oh, something's broken. It's not right. This is never what I signed up for. Blah, blah, blah. We determine what type of people we are. Not how do we react to the other side of the relationship. We must determine that we are men and women of faithfulness. Regardless of what our partners do or do not do. Think of it this way. God will hold you accountable for your side of the ledger. You're always going to say, but they stop. What did you do? How did you react off that? You go, but they're a psycho. Yeah, I, I'm agreeing with you. The question is, is how do you react to a psycho? The question is not, are they difficult? We know the answer to that. The question is, how do you deal with difficult people? You must manage your side of the ledger well, because that is the thing that God will hold you accountable for. You don't get to play the game, but she, but she, but she, Adam, Eve tried that. It didn't work really well, right? But what did you do? In the same way in your walk with God, Jesus is pretty good at holding up his side of the relationship. The only failure you will ever see in your relationship to Jesus is all the times he failed to follow through on what you thought he signed up for, but he never did in the vows. Well, Jesus, you disappointed me. You left me hanging. You did this. You never came through. You did. I never signed up for that. I never signed that document. I never even promised you that in our vows. So why are you expecting that of me? The fill in the blank that should be on your page is only three words. Write them down. It is this. Never give up. Never give up. You never give up on your walk with Jesus. You re-rack your expectations of understanding God as he reveals himself and not what you want him to be. You do not get to remake God into your own image. It goes the other way around. He remakes you into his image. You never give up. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Fire up an app. Take out your Bibles. There should be a Bible under the seat in front of you if you need one. We're just going to be going through verses 1 through 17 today as opposed to the whole chapter. And I'll read through it. We'll go back and tear it apart line by line. Here we go. 
Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin... You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Quote, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. End quote. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have an earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Should we not more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good. That we may share his holiness for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it Therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet So that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled, and that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears." Let's pray for the word this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for letting us walk with you through your word. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would have free reign upon us today, that you do anything and everything you want. We ask that you would alter us and make us into your image today, that we might look like a shining example of Jesus Christ. Lord, change how we think, change how we act, and make us into the people of God. In Jesus' name, amen says this, let's zoom back to verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, right off the bat, you're instantly into a metaphor or a, a word picture of Olympic games, athletic games. They're used a lot in Scripture. That was kind of one of their main modes of entertainment back then. And so they reflect on them. Paul uses the analogies of a race, and this guy does it too, and and what I want you to picture is you're walking into a stadium that is tiered seating and it's surrounding all the way around you and everybody is looking down upon you and it's your turn to run. But what we need to understand is all those that are seated there have already run their own sort of race. And now it's your turn. It's almost like you're walking into a stadium for baseball and there's pennant after pennant after pennant saying, we win here. 
And there's this expectation that you have been set up for success. You have everything you need. Now it's your turn. Get in there and win us another pennant. However you want to design it in your mind, you are surrounded by examples of people. Now it says, it says that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Understand that the word witness is the same root word for martyr. We've already been talking about people that died for the faith. People have gone all the way for Jesus. After you have examples like that set before you, how then shall you live? But it does not mean, in my opinion, you can argue with me and be totally legitimate. In my opinion, it does not suggest that those that have passed on before us are watching us. I know that sounds romantic and a neat idea that uh, we lost somebody and they're looking down upon us. Hold on. Here's my problem with that view. Although I believe it's entirely possible. Although God can do that. Although they could maybe even request that of the Lord. Here's my problem with it. You're not that interesting. They are in the raw presence of Jesus Christ unhindered, and they're looking at you? Since when do you compete with God for attention? I know you're valuable. I know they love you desperately. But what I'm telling you is they're in heaven and they're now pretty enraptured with what's going on there. And quite frankly, when it steps out of time, the next thing they know, you're right there with them. So this whole idea that they have nothing going on and they merely need to watch you and hang out with you, I don't think is likely. I think they have other stuff on their agenda for the day. However, the examples that they have led still speak to us in asking us how we're going to run the race. And that, I think, is what is before us. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight. Pause. We did not even get to the next line about sin. So whatever this weight is, it's not sin. It's something else. Okay, now every pastor in the world has used the same exact analogies over and over and over. Hey, you would never run a marathon with leg weights on, right? right? Or you have this big cloak and it gets in your way. All right, everybody uses the same analogies. Same thing about the guy who's waiting to go in the batter's box. He's on deck in baseball and he's swinging. He has that donut thing that weighs down the bat so they get used to it, right? And you're getting used to the swing. You're not going to go up and hit with that. That would be dumb. You can't even hit a 93-mile-an-hour fastball without it. You're certainly not going to put on extra weight. It just makes it unfruitful. You remove the weight. You remove the hindrance. Then you go in and do your best. So what's the weight on you? Now, you, well, context. Context, yeah. This guy's talking to Hebrews who really want to give up the Christianity thing, go back to Judaism with all the legalism. And so, yeah, context, he's probably telling them, listen, you don't add extra rules and dogma and legalism. You need to run in the freedom of Jesus. But let me ask you, what is it for you? Remember, we're not talking about bad stuff yet. We're talking about good stuff that's getting in the way. What's your good stuff that's getting in the way? You go, I don't know. I can't really tell. Yeah, you can tell me. Watch. Hey, how come you're not more fired up for the Lord right now? What's bothering you? What's soaking up your energy? What's taking up your mental time? What's getting in the way? You know that. And a whole bunch of good things are on that list. Work. Let me just tell you this. If you're a workaholic, you will not excel in your Christian life. 
That's it. Ain't going to happen. Why? Because they collide. What else is in your way? Maybe it's a good thing like really wanting to have, you work really hard and you really want to have downtime. And so maybe now you've become kind of addicted to escapism. There's nothing wrong with escapism. There's nothing wrong with checking out and letting your body chill out or letting your mind chill out. There's nothing wrong with hanging out, watching a couple shows on TV. My question is, is if that is in the way of your spiritual life, has it not become a weight? I don't know what it is for you. For every one of us, it's different. I got all kinds of stuff that weighs me down. That I could be excelling far better in the Lord. I could probably be pursuing uh, what Jesus calls his easy yoke and his light burden. But I don't seem to see that. Somehow I've allowed Christianity to be a heavy burden. Why? Why are we so tired? And how much of that is from running the race and how much of it is from extra stuff that we've been carrying around with us? Is it necessary to carry a backpack in the race? I guess is what I'm asking. So what is that for you? Not only do we need to lay aside that, but we also need to lay aside sin, which clings so closely. Make no mistake, sin will screw up your discipleship process. And you're going, well, no kidding, Captain Obvious. Well, (laughs) we need to realize that when we sin, there are other unintended consequences. And here's the ones that bother me the most. When you sin, you tend to keep your head down. You refuse to talk more about Jesus because then you feel like a hypocrite. And then you don't really want to read the Bible because it's likely that if you open up the Bible, you're going to end up in a passage that makes you feel condemned anyway because you're already struggling with the shame and guilt of what you've been doing. Then you certainly don't want to talk to God because what if he reveals in that time that he's really disappointed in you? You don't want more disappointment in you. And then you don't necessarily want to go to church because right now you're kind of out of the groove. You're doing your own thing. Then you're going to be around a bunch of holy people that seem to know what they're doing. You feel like an outsider. And are you watching all the unintended consequences? How do I know that? Because I live that. Well, you think that there's not sin in my life where I don't want to talk about certain topics from the pulpit because I don't want to feel like a hypocrite? You think there's not things that I try to avoid in Scripture sometimes out of my own flesh? You think that I don't understand that scenario? I'm under a spotlight. And and my sin doesn't affect me? Oh, well, Lance, you're a pastor. You're not supposed to have any sin. Grow up. (laughs) Of course I do. How do we get rid of that stuff? Because it's slowing us down and it's making our race more tiring than it already is. And I don't know about you, but I need less weight in my life, not more. Let's get rid of that stuff, he said, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Okay, what's the obvious point there? We're in a marathon, not a sprint. Big difference. You train different. Let me give you an analogy. I play, uh, out of the different things that I do at the gym, two of the days a week, I play racquetball. Anybody play racquetball? Last night there was one. Yeah, one. Anybody else? Come on, thank you. All right, there's, all right, there's four of us. We're all going to play together later. All right. Now, racquetball, the way that it goes, apparently went out in the 80s. I don't know if anyone notified you. 
But we play, if you play it right and you're super good at it, you can stand in the middle and just kind of hit the ball. Well, we're not awesome at it. So we're running around doing Jackie Chan off the wall. And I mean, we're sprinting up to the front. We're running back, right? Because we're just not good. So we're running all over the place. It's basically like running wind sprints for an hour right? So you get done. I'm beat red. I'm sweating like crazy. I'm exhausted, right? So pretty much that is just constant cardio, makes your heart beat out of your chest, feels like it's going to explode, right? But if you put me out on the road and said, Lance, let's go running. I will run one mile and I'm done. (laughs) Why? Because my whole heart is geared toward fast sprinting reaction do this real quick i have no endurance whatsoever because i'm not training for that that's a different sort of training and here's the problem with it there are so many that get fired up about their walk with god and they're just pumped and amped and they're screaming at everybody you're more holy than you i'm more holy than you right and they're running by you and you should be evangelizing more and they're screaming at you about all your sin and you know these people they get super fired up for jesus and they go hauling past you and you're like man i wish i was that sold out right And you feel bad about yourself it's a tortoise in the hair you guys here we are i'm going right we're being like turtle dude right and we're going by and the little hair's like yeah screaming past us and we're like yeah you go brother right i just i'm still plodding along right well at some point then the the hair is going "Ah, ah, ah, ah," later on he's dying on the side and you're like i'll pray for you brother and you're just going on right by right shouldn't have been so irritating brother or i'd give you a ride you know it's (laughs) it's it's a different way of training i mean we're in it for the long haul right i mean we're we just can't do this whole i'm just gonna blow out everything and then suddenly i'm burnt out from ministry and i give up That, that just doesn't fly it says when we run we are to look to jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. When we do Olympic Games, anybody know who Usain Bolt is? Usain Bolt, one of the fastest runners that we have on the face of this earth. When you watch him run in the next Olympics, see how often he does this. Not likely. It's probably focused forward. Now, you will see him on his periphery glancing sideways to see where he's at in the race. But by and large, he is looking towards one place, the finish line. Why? Because he's going to get there as fast and as best as he can. That's what he's trained for his whole life. It is not about what everyone else is doing. It's about how fast he can run. And so he is running with a goal in mind. In the same way, we are not allowed to spend all our time looking at everybody else in this world and get our eyes off Jesus. It will screw up your race. You'll get so derailed on what everyone else is doing. Who cares what everyone else is doing? In that sense, focus on Jesus and get it done. Do it right. It says this. Consider him. Meaning, take a look at him, dive into it, dig into it, own it, his role modeling, his example. Consider Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. I mean, understand how Jesus lived. Understand what happened to him. What, you think that's not going to happen to you? And you've got to look at that because otherwise you're going to get exhausted and fall apart like everything's falling around you. 
Many commentators cited that this word, this phrase, weary and, uh, what, what's, the, what's the phrase? Faint-hearted. That's the same one that Aristotle used for the athlete who breaks the tape at the end of a race and collapses in exhaustion. Okay, well, that's cool at the end of the race. Doing that in the middle just looks stupid. You're like, oh, and you fall on the ground. And they're like, uh, the finish line's over there, right? And you're all rolling on the ground, you know. Okay, you got to realize that you don't just get to kill yourself and just finish this dramatic thing. We still have a whole long ways to run. Keep your eye on the prize. In your struggle against sin, he tells his readers, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Apparently, he uses an exact phrase from the Maccabean revolt period that I told you about last week. Remember that? The guys who were stretched out on the wheel and destroyed and killed for their faith. And then Judas Maccabeus rises up and leads a, an attack and they're hiding in caves. And it's all this crazy. Remember all that? The guys that died for their faith right there. Same phrase. He said, you know what, readers? At this point, God has not allowed you to be persecuted to the point of death. Not yet. Okay, so it's perfect for us. I don't see anyone here that has the personal welt marks of being beaten for Jesus. Do not allow our freedom to make us soft and weak. Because it's going to be really embarrassing if we get up to heaven. And you know how you look at certain eras where people were hardcore? And you just go, man, that era was just tough as nails. Are they just going to look at us? We're the pansy era, right? <laughs> we're just like, I think someone made fun of me, huh? You know, and when you was seriously, when you're at the water cooler up in heaven and they're like, Hey, how'd you lose all your limbs? Right. And the guy's like, well, I was stretched out on a rack. I was drawn and quartered and everything. What happened to you? And you're like, um, well, this one time he took my lunch money and you just look stupid. Now, granted, this largely is happening in free countries where we're all kind of wimpy. There are people in our nation right here, right now, not in our nation, in our world that are dying for the cause of Christ. And their persecution is so severe that they can look at this and go, actually, I have shed blood. And they look at this passage and go, well, that's good for the Hebrews. You know what? We've gone the distance. The church in China, the church in communist countries, the churches in Sudan. I mean, do you understand? They read this and they're on the other side of it. But we do not allow it to make us weak. Verse 5, and have you forgotten the exhortation in the Old Testament that addresses you as sons in Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. And he quotes it, my son, Solomon was writing to his actual son, but he knew that it would be read by all those that appreciated his wisdom. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. When you hear the word discipline in this context, you need to get into a Hebrew mindset. The Hebrew mindset is that discipline means instruction, training, and correction. I want you to hear the word training. Why? Because it speaks, the same word for discipline is used for a father training up his children and instructing them. It's not a negative now, there are words that mean correction or bringing the hammer down. That's the next word. So it says, do not take lightly the training of the Lord, nor be weary when, 
reproved by him. That is the correction. Like you were way out of line, kid, and I'm not just going to let it go. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises. There's that other word again. Remember, it means whips. Chastises every son whom he receives. Now, the other thing you need to realize is this is referring to adult children. This is not referring to infants. You go, man, that's ridiculous. Why are you whipping your babies? Okay, that's not what it says. It's talking about correcting. And you go, adult sons, what are you really going to do? I don't even get that. They come from a Roman world mindset. The Roman Empire was running the show when this was written. What does that have to do with it? Does everybody know the Roman rule for fathers? The Roman rule for fathers is he owns you as long as he lives. I don't care how old you are. The father was the one to determine whether or not a baby should be discarded or allowed to live. They were to be brought before the father and he would make that determination. If he said, I don't want it, they'd kill the child. He was allowed to beat them, whip them, sell them into slavery and has a power over life and death. The government allowed him to have the power to kill his children, no matter how old they are. Until that guy's gone, he owns you and he owns your kids. So. When we start referring to things, we're going, well, my dad was not, you know, not healthy and everything. Well, hold up. You think that people didn't abuse this power? Are you kidding me? This Roman law of fatherhood was extreme. So when he's referring to all this, he said, God is treating you as sons. What son is there whom the father does not discipline? Let's pause. Who is that dad? If we're using that word discipline as training, What son is the one that's being neglected, ignored, and left out, but the son that is unloved? If a father abdicates and ignores his child, that is evidence of a lack of care. So if there is no training, there is no discipline, there is no nothing, that means there's no love there. He said, we don't want that. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Why? Because you don't spank the neighbor's kids. I want to talk about this hardship thing because let's clarify. How are we supposed to see this as God's guidance in our life? What type of hardship should we put in this category? Are we talking about persecution like uh, in trouble for our faith? Is that what we're talking about? Or are we talking about I got cancer? What are we putting into this category? When we say hardship and difficulty and trial or discipline, what part of that is included? Do you know? Because it gets a little bit complicated for me. One one commentary said it best. It said, all suffering that can teach us something. Well, let me ask you. Doesn't all suffering teach you something? Well, you know what? I hear this a lot. There is no benefit to what I'm going through. I'll tell you right now, I've examined it backwards and forwards. I don't see God's hand in any of this. I don't see anything that he's doing. Nothing good is coming out of this. And this is all a waste of time. I don't understand why I have to have chronic pain for the rest of my life. I'm not seeing any glory to God. The problem with that is you're the only one that doesn't see it. We all see it. Why? Because it's revealing and changing you. Well, that's not good enough for me. God didn't ask your opinion. 
How did it work with Job? Let's go back to lowest common denominator, right? Why did God do that to him? Because it was largely bigger than Job. Maybe your situation's bigger than you. But God is in control and he allows certain things to come through. Nobody gets to blindside God with his kids. He is incredibly defensive over his children. So why all the heartache and pain and everything else? Because we're not okay where we're at. And there are consequences to being in a broken world and it's very, very complicated. But I will tell you this. God doesn't waste time. He knows what he's doing and he knows what he allows and he knows what you can handle and he knows what he's going to do with that. Some struggle is good. As a matter of fact, struggle is necessary for survival. Let me use the the old school analogy. If you've been in church for longer than five years, you've heard this 82 times. It's the butterfly coming out of the cocoon analogy. Everybody remember this one? You were taught it in Sunday school. Here's the analogy. Um, And and to give you a a realistic view of this, I've had a buddy a lot of my life. His name is Galen Ramos. And Galen is a super creative, totally weird dude that I just think is awesome. He gave my wife and I, uh, for our wedding present, a monarch butterfly cocoon. And that's weird, right? So what you do is you have him in this little container and you watch him and he doesn't do anything. And then over time, he emerges out of his cocoon, and then you have this cool monarch butterfly, and you set him free. That's the whole point of it, which is pretty neat because it's almost like having the Discovery Channel in your room. It's pretty nice. So we named ours. His name was Runway. Now, Runway, I watched him emerge out of the cocoon, and he did the whole unfurling his wings thing, and then he tried to fly. He's like, (laughs) and then he was like, and he'd hang on to my screen. Right? Because we're like, go, runway, go. And he's like, you know, and he was having a hard time because his wings were drying and he was getting used to getting strong. Here's the deal. Bottom line analogy, if you helped him out of his cocoon, he dies. Why? Because that's how he gets his strength. He has to push against it and work his muscles out and then he can use his wings. If you go, let me help you out of there because I feel bad about your struggle. Let me open it up for you. You'll kill him. Okay. Simply put. We have to have suffering and struggle and strain to grow. It's unfortunate, but it's true. Besides this, verse 9, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the fathers of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. In other words, every bit that God allows into your life, he will utilize for his glory. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. That's obvious. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I know you're okay with where you're at. But Jesus is not. Therefore, verse 12, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. That, I believe, is a phrase that means be discouraged. It says stop being discouraged. 
Whatever it means, you got to change your mindset about all this because you can either just hurt and go nowhere or you can hurt and grow muscle. There's a big difference there. There are times uh, when I'm in the gym, the whole concept of, of weightlifting is resistance and you're basically exhausting yourself out, but you're growing muscle. But there are some times I go through my whole day, I didn't go to the gym at all, and I go to bed wiped out and exhausted and I didn't even do anything. And I'm like, shouldn't that count? Shouldn't I just be super ripped because I sat at a computer all day and I'm all emotionally tired? (laughs) But some of it's just exhaustion with no benefit, and some of it is exhaustion with muscle growth. I would rather your suffering be exhaustion with muscle growth than just miserable with nothing. What's going to make the difference? Your attitude. Your heart before God. How are you engaging with your suffering? Are you allowing it to destroy your heart or are you allowing God to minister to you in the midst? Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet. What does that mean? Make good decisions. Otherwise, you're going to trip up and it's going to make life harder. The more drama and chaos you bring into your life, the harder everything gets and you're going to hurt yourself. So it says, so that what is lame, what is wounded in you, what is handicapped in you may not be ultimately broken or put out of joint and made worse. But if it's straight, it can be healed along the way and you can become stronger. And then he gives instructions in verse 14 through 17 on how we're to act in our faithfulness. First one, strive for peace, strive for shalom, strive for things to be right between you and God and right between you and other people with everyone. Strive for the holiness, the setting aside for God, acting like God, living like God. Strive for that type of walk without which no one will see the Lord and see to it that no one we're looking out for each other. We are a family. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Think of it like this. The stragglers, we're all moving forward. We're going on a trip and there's a straggler in the back. For whatever reason, he's not keeping up with us. She's not keeping up with us. Either they're bored or they're tired or they don't care anymore. Whatever. They're getting left behind. Don't you dare leave them behind. Whatever happened to our relationships where we care about each other's spiritual lives? Where you literally see your buddy falling behind and you get in his face and go, dude, you're going with me. No, I'm not, man. I'm tired. I don't care if you're tired. You're going with me. I don't want to go to a men's group. Men's groups are stupid. Well, you know what? I think you need it. And I don't care what you think right now because you're not even thinking straight. You need to go with me to men's group right here, right now. Well, no, my wife's got something going on. No, she does not, you liar. Go to me, go with me to men's group. Where, where is that accountability where we're helping our buddies because we actually care? You're not doing it for any selfish reasons. You're doing it for him. You're doing it for her, right? Strive for peace with everyone, for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and that by it many become defiled. That is a quote from the Old Testament that refers to someone who cares about other stuff more than God and starts infecting everybody. You don't let that happen in your group. It's rare that you're going to have in your group of buddies or ladies in your group of girlfriends. It's going to be rare that you're just going to have someone go, do you guys know I'm a witch? 
Be like, what? I had no idea. Yes, I have been serving Satan for years. You're like, what? No, what? no. that's not going to happen. Almost always it's going to be you have someone in your group that's completely obsessed with materialism. And then what that ends up doing is bleeding through all the other friends, and then everybody starts getting their eyes on the wrong thing. And then everybody starts going that groove, and then all of a sudden the whole group is materialistic. That's a bit more realistic. The guys, you're all hanging out with your buddies. One person's completely focused on financial success or trying to be the best at everything. And eventually it bleeds into the rest of the guys. The rest of the guys start discounting church and focus on the Lord because they've got to work on their careers. That's, that's what we run into. Watch out for that stuff. And see to it, verse 16, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. That refers to an, a Hebrew thought of folklore about Esau being a, a man that was not focused on God. Who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. You know the story? You got Esau, who's like the you know, guy, he's out there and he's shooting stuff, you know, and he's hunting and doing all this. So he's out on this long trip, kind of doing this hunting thing, and he comes back in, and his brother, it's Jacob and Esau, they're twins, right? And so Jacob's inside going, I'm whipping up something awesome, right? And he's, he's in the kitchen, and he's doing the, you know, he's getting everything organized. Well, well, tough guy comes back in, he's like, I'm exhausted, man, I'm totally hungry, I'm, I'm famished, you know, give me some food, right? And the guy's like, well, what you got for me, Right? I've been slaving over a hot stove, bro. I'm not going to, you know, right? What you got for me? And he's like, well, I don't know. What do you want? I just want food. And he's like, give me your birthright. My, my what? Give me my birthright. Oh, you mean my magic power, right? From, yeah, me being the firstborn and, ooh, God's going to bless me and all that stuff. Whatever, dude. You can have my magic amulet. That's cool. Can I have the soup now? And that was it. Why? Because Esau didn't think any of that stuff mattered. He didn't think any of that stuff was valuable. Why? Because he's only looking at what he can taste, touch, see. I can see soup. I don't know anything about this magic amulet power stuff. Then all of a sudden later on in his life when it mattered, and he finally realized that it was probably one of the greatest things he ever possessed, he went, oh, shoot. But he couldn't undo it. What'd you miss? You're screwing around, focused so much on the world. Focus so much on what you got, what you got, what you got. At some point, all of a sudden, God's going to wreck your world. And you're going to go, man, I screwed up and wasted so much time, I could have been walking with Jesus. Guess what? You can't turn the clock back. Come on, why are we not having our heads in the game and getting focused on the right stuff? We keep getting hijacked. Listen, here's the bottom line. The bottom line to all this is that we are surrounded by all these examples of people that were just amazing. Sure, they were scared and doubted and flipped out and all kinds of weird stuff and dysfunction in their families, but they kept going with Jesus. What are we going to do? Are we going to do that? Are we going to? Because we can. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. We are 100% equipped. We are spoiled. We are given more and more and more. And if our hearts desire more things for the Lord, he said, I want you to ask me. I want you to pursue that because I can even give you more stuff. Let's go out and change the world. This whole idea that we're going to sit back and live a mediocre existence does not fly with God. We can do this. What is it going to take? kick you into high gear yeah because you got to own it it can't come from me you got to own it what does it mean what does jesus need to tell you pray about that 
Let's pray and I'll give you the closing challenge. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you, Lord, for encouraging us, challenging us, and letting us see a different way of living. We love you and we thank you for your incredible, glorious ways that you deal with us. May we get our eyes locked in on you. In Jesus' name, amen. Closing challenge is this. Write a letter. You don't want to write. I don't care. Write a letter. On the computer, in handwriting, whatever it is, write a letter to Jesus. What are you going to write about? You're going to recommit your life to him. You're going to renew your vows to him. And you're going to tell him that you are loyal and that you are committed to him if you truly believe it. Why are you going to do that? Because it makes him smile. That's it. I want you to go home this week, write a love letter to your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Have a wonderful day, and we will see you next week.